we do ask, Lord God, tonight that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit, that everything that is said and done tonight would be to your honor and glory. We know ourselves, Lord God, that we, we are before you in need of your purification, of your cleansing, so that everything that we do here and everything that is said tonight would be, Lord, uh, rightly divided, that it would be that which is necessary for our continued growth and in, in our maturity in Christ. Our desire, Lord God, is to be conformed each and every day into the image of your Son. And that is our Lord prayer. That's our prayer, our desire. That, that, is what we, that is what we seek. That we might see Jesus in our hearts, Lord. And not only that, that others would see Jesus in us. Lord, in these, in these days and these times in which we live, how, how necessary it is to keep our eyes focused upon you. And not to let this world become the distraction that it is and the things of this world, Lord God, to pull us away from that which gives you the honor, the glory, and the praise. And so, Father, we, we pray and lift all of these things up tonight so that you would be mighty and strong in us. We who are just weak vessels, yet, Lord, this is who you choose to proclaim your good news, your gospel. In the name of Jesus Christ. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen. Isaiah 28. Tonight we're going to cover verses 1 through 13. And, uh, and so we're going to take a little bit of time through this chapter. Not too much. Before we finish it next time. But Isaiah 28 verses 1 through 13. Let's read verses 1 through 4 as we begin tonight. And take this first paragraph into our hearts and in our minds. Woe to the crown of pride, to the drunkards of Ephraim, whose glorious beauty is a fading flower which is at the head of the verdant valleys, to those who are overcome with wine. Behold, the Lord has a mighty and strong one, like a tempest of hail and a destroying storm, like a flood of mighty waters overflowing, who will bring them down to the earth with his hand. The crown of pride, the drunkards of Ephraim, will be trampled underfoot. And the glorious beauty is a fading flower which is at the head of the verdant valley, like the first fruit before the summer, which an observer sees. He eats it up while it is still. In his hand. Too often in our selfishly licentious society, we have to be warned of potential dangers to our lives and our loved ones through the mistakes of others, their fall serving as the warning. We see it in public service announcements for MAD or law enforcement agencies and the like, often with video and graphic detail. We see it in PSA warnings against the dangers of smoking or unprotected sex. Others have suffered before us and we are being warned to be watchful and wise based on their failures. This is how Isaiah begins this new 
eight chapter section from chapter 28 through uh, chapter 35, which, which is actually directed towards the southern kingdom of Judah. In chapters 28 through 31, we find a series of five woes. And any time we see that statement of woe, it is a statement of judgment. And so we find five woes that are recorded that are focused mainly on Jerusalem in chapters 28 through 31. There are other woes that are found in the following chapters that are interspersed with references to promises of restoration and glory. But the prophet's main goal is to get the rulers of Judah to quit trusting in politics and treaties with other nations and start trusting in the Lord. Now, we we are talking about something that's dealing with, with, with issues that happened thousands of years ago. But I think it, it is wise to say that, and right to say that, uh, that would be the same kind of warning we need in our own nation as well. A warning that says that we need to quit trusting in politics and treaties with other nations and start trusting in God. But it's sad to say that uh, our nation that was founded on the very fundamental Judeo-Christian ethics and morality is, is being just washed away, being moved out of the way. And we need to pray for our country. And we need to pray for our leaders. We hear a lot of talk and we hear a lot of promises. But we don't see a lot of people on their knees before the Lord. Nations are very important to the Lord. And in particular in our day and time because we're living in it and through it. And whatever is important to the Lord, whatever is important to God, it needs to be important to His people. And so we can't take this as, as being from the perspective of a spectator. We are in the midst of a spiritual battle each and every day. And we need to be awakened to that. Here we're talking about something as we're learning through this, this book of Isaiah, this prophecy of Isaiah, so that we might focus our attention upon the far fulfillment that's going to affect us in the very near future. But, but it's something that affects us today and even now. We can't shelter ourselves to the past, between the past and the future. We live in the present, and this is where God lives with us. And we have to start taking very seriously the things from the Scriptures that awaken us. You see, I'm talking about warnings here for us today. And it won't be just the warnings that we see on TV. It's the warnings that God is saying to us very clearly. I'm coming soon. Are you ready? Are you going to be ready when I come? This is how Isaiah begins this, you see. The Lord allowed Isaiah to see the storm clouds that were forming and gathering over the holy city of Jerusalem so that the prophet might announce the trouble was on its way. It was time for the nation to turn to repentance, in repentance to their God. It was time for them. And, and these are the warnings. The prophets came very clearly and, and, and very strongly to the people and said, it's time to turn yourselves to God. The trouble is on the horizon. You know, if we do not see the storm clouds right now, we're blind. We're spiritually blind. The storm clouds are, are there. 
And it was time then for the nation to turn to the Lord. Because they were God's people. It's interesting that the city of Jerusalem means city of peace. Within the word Jerusalem in the Hebrew, Yerushalayim, we have the word Shalom. The city of peace. Since through its whole history it has been connected uh, uh, more with with conflict than with peace. (laughs) I mean, I I find it interesting that it's called the city of peace because it's more connected with with conflict. It's more connected with war. It's more connected with what we see even today. If you look uh, at the Middle East, what is the very focus of attention? Oh, listen, we hear about Iraq and we hear about Iran. We hear about all these other things. But what we know is that their focus is upon Israel, in particular, the city of Jerusalem. Is it any wonder then that we are admonished in the scriptures to pray for the peace of Jerusalem? Psalm 122, verse 6. The psalmist says, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they prosper who love you. I find it really hard, by the way, to to think that this scripture exists uh, so that we can look at that in a very uh, mystical way or in in a very super spiritualized way. Uh, There is a Jerusalem people and we're to love it and we're to pray for it. How do, you, how do you spiritualize this or, or, or make it say that, well, you know, there's, that really God is not interested in a, in a physical Israel anymore, that God has taken his eyes off of Israel because they failed him and all, and now he's put all the blessings of Israel upon the church. What do we say about Jerusalem? It's still in God's word. It's still for us. How do you spiritualize that? You can't. We are to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Is Jerusalem the city today at peace? Not at all. So it is still for us to pray for the peace of this city. And there's good reason for this. The reason is this. When true peace comes to Jerusalem, then there will be world peace. What is it that the world is wanting today? In many corners and in many ways it's stated, we want peace. The world should be at peace, you know. But they're trying to have peace on their own terms, not on God's terms. They don't want to have anything to do with God, but God can be the God of peace if they want Him to be. <clears throat> but the world says, you know, listen, you know, we have too many aggressive nations. But, it's, but it's, there's double standards in all of that too, isn't there? They attacked the United States for going to Iraq, but then again, you know, the, there, there, there was all kinds of, of, of murder and genocide taking place for years and years and years. Who are we defending? This is one reason why we ought not to focus so much on politics and all of that, but, but trust in the Lord, our God. When true peace comes to Jerusalem, folks, then there will be world peace. That's why we need to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. How do we know this? Well, take, for example, Isaiah 52. Jump a few chapters before or after. Isaiah 52, verses 7 through 10. Listen to these words, words that are applied to the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Notice it says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of Him who brings good news, who proclaims peace, who brings glad tidings of good things, who proclaims salvation, who says to Zion, Your God reigns. Your watchmen shall lift up their voices. With their voices they shall sing together, for they shall see eye to eye when the Lord brings back Zion. 
Break forth into joy. Sing together, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted His people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. Notice, the Lord has made bare His holy arm in the eyes of all the nations, and all the, nation, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. In other words, when there is peace in Jerusalem, there will be peace in the world. And if that's not enough, Then Isaiah 66, verses 12 and 13 says this. For thus says the Lord, Behold, I will extend peace to her like a river, and the glory of the Gentiles like a flowing stream. Then you shall feed. On her side shall you be carried and be dandled in her knees as one whom his mother comforts. So I will comfort you, and you shall be comforted in Jerusalem. The Bible is very clear. The Scriptures are clear that when peace comes to Jerusalem then there will be world peace. And so pray for the peace of Jerusalem. And what a lovely promise there is. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they prosper who love you. So with that in mind, Isaiah begins his message by announcing this woe, by announcing this judgment. God's judgment on the northern kingdom of Israel, what we call Israel, which would be, you know, in the divided kingdom, the northern part. Some would call it Samaria. Ephraim here is mentioned since it was the prominent tribe of that nation. And so it was, it was called Ephraim here. But notice again, verses one through four. Woe, one through four. Woe to the crown of pride, to the drunkards of Ephraim, whose glorious beauty is a fading flower, which is at the head of the verdant valleys. Verdant, of course, being fruitful valleys, as it were. But those who are overcome with, with wine. Behold, the Lord has a mighty and strong one, like a tempest of hail and a destroying storm, like a flood of mighty waters overflowing, who will bring them down to the earth with his hand. The crown of pride, the drunkards of Ephraim, will be trampled underfoot. And the glorious beauty is a, fl- is a fading flower which is at the head of the verdant valley like the first fruit before the summer. Which an, o- when, which an observer sees, he eats it up while, while it is still in his hand. If the warring nation of Assyria, and we've covered this in our study so far in the book of Isaiah, but if the warring nation of Assyria, Assyria, conquered the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel, which is Samaria, then Judah was next on the list. This is how the Assyrian army came. They came from the east, they came from the northeast actually, and then they swept down to the northern kingdom, and of course they headed toward Jerusalem in the southern kingdom. So Judah naturally was was next on the list. Pride was their crown in the northern kingdom. Pride was their crown, and Samaria was the focal point of that pride. The wreath, in other words, the crown, of course, was not crowns like we would know it, you know, gold and all of that, but wreaths, as it were. And it was the wreath at the head of a very fruitful valley that in their arrogant minds, they considered to be impregnable and unconquerable. They had become such a strong army physically, they had thought of themselves to be so wise to protect themselves, to, uh, to surround themselves with, with, with what they thought to be walls that could not be torn down. All the major cities, of course, had walls. 
If the walls weren't very strong, they weren't, uh, they weren't held by whoever had them at that, at that point in time very long. But if a stronger nation would come, then they'd build stronger walls. And so there was a pride about this. That they just considered themselves to be unconquerable. And with that kind of pride, there was no fear of enemies. And they had an attitude of flaunting luxury and pleasure in the north. By the way, if we call this Israel, and we know it to be Israel, this was an Israel without God. This was an Israel that did not have its focus upon God. They had a religion. They, made, they, they did certain things on certain days. They, they actually would, uh, would also embrace other gods, but they were not worshiping the true God. We know as we study the, the history of the kings that none of the northern kings were good kings. None of them were, were, were kings that were turned toward God. Every one of the kings in the northern kingdom was, was a bad king. Everyone was a bad king. In the south, there were some good kings and there were some bad kings. But in the north, they were all lousy. Because they all were in it for themselves. By the way, if we go back to Isaiah chapter 9 for just a moment, in verses 9 and 10, we get a, a, another glimpse, just kind of a, a glimpse in review of what this problem was. It says, all the people will know, Ephraim and the inhabitant of Samaria, who say in pride and arrogance of heart, the bricks have fallen down, but we will rebuild with hewn stones. The sycamores are cut down, but we will replace them with cedars. In other words, yeah, things are going to go, you know, we, we, we've got this little setback, you know, the Assyrians have come down, but it's not so bad. We're, we're going to rebuild. We're, we're strong people. But, but uh, we, we've, we realize that, uh, that the proverb in, in Proverbs 16, 18 will, will actually become real here for them. Pride goes before destruction in a haughty spirit before a fall. And folks, that's, that is something that, that we in the church of Jesus Christ ought to take to heart and take note of each and every day of our lives. That any little amount of pride, any little amount of arrogance, even if it's a little, I don't know how you can have a little pride. I guess you can. You know, but, but a little pride will always get bigger. And, and, and then your head gets big. See, when, when pride gets big, your head gets big. And it gets so big, you can't go out the door. We, we got double doors, and those wouldn't be enough. You can't even go sideways, you know. Because, you know, your head is so huge, you know. Because, but it starts with a little. It starts with this little pride. But, but, but we know that once, once it takes root inside of us, that it's just going to spread like wildfire. Jesus taught us humility. The apostles taught us to be humble. The prophets taught us to be humble. We ought to take note. Why is it that in the church of Jesus Christ today so many people are, 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 are boasting about what they have? How many numbers? How, how many acres? How many square feet? Boasting. You know, it, 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 it burdens me. These things matter not to God. These things do not matter to the Lord. What matters is our hearts. What matters is ourselves laid down before the Lord, saying, God, here I am. Use me, send me, take me, cleanse me, but use me, Lord, because, Lord, <laughs> I'm yours. We can talk about pride. We talk, every time we mention pride, we talk about it. Why? Because it's a problem we have. It's a problem we have to fight every day. 
It's a, it's a problem we have to fight every day. We have mirrors in our houses. They help us to focus on ourselves a little bit. We certainly want to be presentable. But be careful of the gleam in your eye when you look too long. You look a little too long and man, you know, whoo, hot. <laughs> uh, the truth is scary. Mm. Okay. Enough about pride. But in reality, what does pride lead to? Think about this in this particular case. The Lord wasn't just sickened with their pride. He was also sickened and disgusted by their drunkenness. Their drunkenness. This is one of the few passages that speaks directly to drunkards. And it's put that way, isn't it? Drunkards. Notice it doesn't say alcoholics. We, we, we've, turned, we've turned drunkenness, which is a sin, into alcoholism, which is a sickness. Bottom line is it's still a sin. There is a problem that can be dealt with, and the best way to deal with it is to give it to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the best way to deal with it. Some of us in this room know what I'm saying. We've been there. There's a considerable passage that points out the foolishness of drunkenness. The folly of drunkenness. We find it in Proverbs 23, verses 29 through 35. I mean, it's a considerable passage, but it's, it's something worth understanding here when, when we see that the Lord was, was sick and, and is sickened even today with this, with this problem. Notice it says here in verse 29, Who has woe? Woe is me. In other words, the, the, the sense of being so weighed down with, with some sense of, of guilt and, uh, because of judgment. Who has sorrow? Who has contentions? Who has complaints? Who has wounds without cause? It, it amazes me. I'm just going to give us a little writing commentary here, but it amazes me sometimes when I look in the newspapers and I see about fights and stabbings and here and there. Where? Mostly at bars. Mostly in the parking lots of nightclubs. Contentions, complaints, and wounds without cause. What cause? Isn't it interesting that some people will stab, one person will stab another person because they argue about a football team? Or it could be even more serious about, you know, another woman or whatever. What's wrong with a society? But here, I mean, what, what, uh, thousands of years ago, what this, this was the problem then. It's a problem now. It's only magnified now. Magnified by our sophistication. We talk about being so sophisticated. Look at the advertisements today for liquor and for, for alcohol and all these things. Who are they directed toward? The young people and the good-looking people, as it were. But notice, who has the woe? Who has sorrow? Who has contentions? Who has complaints? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Now, there's a big market for that stuff you put in your... What's that called? I forgot. A visine, you know. It gets the red out. Well, a visine might get the red out here, man, but it doesn't get the red out here. See? 
And notice the answer to the questions. Those who linger long at wine. Linger long. Hanging around with it. Hanging there a long, long time. Just one more. Just one more. Got the idea? Lingering long? Those who go in search of mixed wine? Not just the fruit of the vine that is given so that there can be joy amongst everyone in, 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 in a proper and godly way as God meant it for His people there. Verse 31, Do not look on the wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it swirls around smoothly. At the last it bites like a serpent and stings like a viper. Your eyes will see strange things. And your heart will utter perverse things. Man, what bar did Isaiah sit around? You know, or I should say Solomon. What, what bar did Solomon? You know, some of us are saying, man, was he outside the other day? Well, not none of you, I'm saying. Somebody will hear this on tape or something. Yes, you, you will be like one who lies down in the midst of the sea. Or like one who lies at the top of the mast saying, they have struck me, but I was not hurt. Well, maybe I should say that. They have struck me, but I was not hurt. They have beaten me, but I do not feel it. Go ahead. Go ahead. It doesn't matter. I can take it. Right? You see the foolishness here? When shall I awake that I may seek another drink? God calls that drunkenness. The Lord Jesus Himself warned against drunkenness in the last days. He said in Luke 21, verses 33, I'm sorry, 34 to 36, but take heed to yourselves, He says. Jesus Himself is saying this, lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, and cares of this life, and that day come on you unexpectedly. For it will come as a snare on all those who dwell on the face of the whole earth. Watch therefore and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. Jesus was was hitting the nail on the head here. Take heed. Be watchful. Warnings have been given. Take heed to these things, unless you know, lest your heart be, be weighed down with carousing. Thirty years ago, we used to call that cruising. <laughs> but it's always just been carousing. Some of you remember, right? Cruising, ascarity. Probably still do it today. I don't know. Maybe cost too much. A dollar, but you know. A dollar is a dollar. Drunkenness and the cares of this life. 
The warnings against drunkenness can be traced all the way back to the law, uh, obviously, and, and, and we should know that. I mean, De- Deuteronomy chapter 21, listen, here in verses 18 through 21, again, a little considerable passage here, but, but enough for us to see where, where we're going in all of this. It says, if a man has a stubborn and rebellious son, listen carefully, all right? If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and who, when they have chastened him, will not heed them, then his father and his mother shall take hold of him and bring him out to the elders of his city, to the gate of his city, and they shall say to the elders of his city, Notice, this son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. And then all the men of his city shall stone him to death with stones. So you shall put away the evil from among you, and all Israel shall hear and fear. That freaks us out a little bit, doesn't it? That was the law. That was the law. The law is hard, folks. The law is hard. But think about this. You want to know what else is hard today? It's hard to bring up our children right because of all of the influences around us saying, let them go. They're their own people. They need to know. They need to learn. They need to grow. They need to be whoever they are. What what has that done to parenthood? What has that done to the educational system, the public educational system that we have today that has fallen apart from within? We as Christian families need to remember, Christian parents, we need to remember to bring up our children in the ways of God. Bring up up our children in, in God's love and God's grace and God's mercy. And yet, at the same time, correction is necessary. Why? It is necessary because it teaches us love. It teaches us God's grace. It teaches us God's mercy. It teaches us that there really is a right and a wrong. It teaches us that there really are absolutes. These crazy professors and universities, and I'll talk about, you know, the intellectual foolishness today, but but these, these people are saying, listen, everything is relative. You ought to ask them something. Is it, is it, are you absolutely sure? It's relative, absolutely. Well, wait a minute. If everything's relative, then it shouldn't be absolute. Because you're saying that things are relative, but there's no absolutes. You just said that relativity is as absolute. So it's like speaking out of both sides of their mouth. There are absolutes. There is right and wrong. Without that, we can't have law. We can't have law enforcement. We can't have anything that would be to the betterment of our society. We have to understand, when God gave the law, Man had sinned. And the law was there to help man, to protect man, and to point man to their Savior. What does Paul say in Galatians? That the law was the schoolmaster, the tutor to to bring us to Christ. And in Christ we find God's mercy, God's grace. In Proverbs 20, verse 1, it says, Wine is a mocker, strong drink is a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. I think that says it all. Why should we even go on? But think about this. The cost of drunkenness. 
The cost of drunkenness to our present day society is staggering, both to the direct effect and to the extended price. The direct of, of, of drunkenness, as well as the extended cost of drunkenness, as it were. Think about this, 100,000 deaths and $100 billion in losses because of, drunk, because of drunkenness. Not just drunk driving, but because of any kind of, of, of thing or involvement or domestic dispute or whatever. Think about the numbers, 100,000 deaths and $100 billion in losses. A government official in Washington, D.C. was quoted as saying this, We have three parties in this city. Talking about Washington, D.C. We have three parties in this city. The Democratic Party, the Republican Party, and the Cocktail Party. But that's a sad thing, isn't it? Because, you know, you're thinking, this, this, is the, this is the capital of the United States. You know, when you combine the effects of America's two legal narcotics, and, and, and folks, I'm just stating the facts here. When you combine the effects of America's two legal narcotics, alcohol and nicotine, you come to realize that they've done far more damage than even illegal drugs combined. And by the way, this doesn't make illegal drugs acceptable. I'm not saying this for that reason. I want you to put things in perspective. I mentioned this already, but our youth continue to be the targets of drunkenness through advertising. What a sad thing it is when we see in the news today, you know, where, where all this binge drinking is going on in colleges, camp, college campuses. Hey, it's going on in high schools too. There, there, there's youth drinking even in junior high and even in, in, in lesser grades. Not in the greater numbers, but, but it's still there. What a sad thing when we, when we, look, we turn on the TV and, and there they're doing a report about, about kids offering and giving uh, marijuana cigarettes to two-year-olds on videotape. You talk about being foolish, but then going one step further and videotaping it. Well, in a way, it's a good thing because then we got to see what, you know, you know, what, a, what, a, what a demonic thing this, this was, was happening. Can, can there be any hope at all for our pleasure-seeking society, our pleasure-loving society that, that gives just lip service, if at all, any lip service to religion, but re ignores the consequences of sin? And I, and I say that, uh, you know, thoughtfully. Lip service to religion and ignoring the consequences of sin. Everybody wants religion. Everybody has some religion. Even an atheist believes in, in one God, his own, himself. Not a God, but his, you know, he's God. Won't say it in those terms, but that's what he's saying. But he wants religion, but they also want no consequences. Well, enough of that. Samaria, getting back to our text here, Samaria's arrogant beauty was was fading like a, like a cut flower that would not be able to stand up to the coming storm. And that storm was coming in the form of the Assyrian army. And on that day, they would learn a lesson, a valuable lesson, but they would learn it way too late. Have you ever been in a position where you've learned a lesson, but it was too late to learn that lesson? 
and he couldn't actually go back to do anything about it. A regrettable situation. Think about it for a moment. The northern kingdom of Israel would learn a lesson way too late. Look at verses 5 and 6 now of Isaiah 28. In that day, of course, that little phrase refers to what? A day to come. It refers to judgment day. It refers to the day of the Lord, of course. In that day, the Lord of hosts will be for a crown of glory and a diadem of beauty to the remnant of His people. And so here's a remnant mentioned. There is a remnant of believers. And God is going to be that crown and He's going to be that diadem of beauty, that that, that great stone and lovely stone of beauty. For a spirit of justice, verse 6, for a spirit of justice to Him who sits in judgment and for strength to those who turn back to the battle at the gate. The lesson was this, that the Lord God, not Samaria, the Lord God is the crown of glory and the diadem of beauty, and that He is a God of justice and Jerusalem's deliverer from Assyria, even when they were at their very gates. Now, much of Judah was destroyed by Assyria, but when they came to Jerusalem, they weren't able to take Jerusalem. Of course, we know that later on, Jerusalem would be taken by the Babylonians. The fact of the matter is, they came to the very gates and stopped there. God's glory, you see. God's glory will always remain even when we, in our faded glory, grow discouraged or depressed due to sins like drunkenness and and disobedience. We might lose our judgment or our discernment and our faded glory. We, We might lose our strength and our ability to fight against evil, but His glory will never fade. You see, it is the glory of God that never fades. And all that we need, we can receive from the God of glory. We need strength. We get it from the God of glory. Look at our text. We need justice. We get it from the God of glory. We need strength. We get it from the God of glory. We get deliverance. We get it, we get it from the God of glory. You see, our glory fades, folks. Our glory fades. Make no mistake about it, we get older. We're not as smart as we used to be. We're not as fast as we used to be. We don't remember everything we used to remember. To an extent, you know, we can still be very, very lucid and all, but but we slow down a little bit. We spend more time considering the aches and pains that we have than we did before. But we're human and we're physically human and, and, and... and, and that glory is fading away. Praise God that what God gave us a spirit that, that, that can only grow in maturity in Christ, no matter how old we are. No matter how long we've been with the Lord, there's some things that we'll never forget. We'll never forget God's Word. It is amazing to me how many things that people can forget. We, 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 can, we, we get to the point sometimes because of the pressures of life, we can get to the point where we can, we can start forgetting that we had a list in our pocket to pick up milk at the store. And we get home and we say, what's this? Oh, and guess what? You take another trip. And then you go into the store and you start buying all this stuff and you forget the, the milk. And, and we can do that. 
but but it, it happened. We, we, we've all gone through it maybe a little bit at a time and maybe a lot at a time. I don't know. But one thing is for sure. When somebody asks you about the love of Christ, you don't forget. Oh, you might say, where's that verse? And, but, but this is what it says. And then you say it and you think, wow. Why? Because God takes care of that. God takes care of that in us. The fact of the matter is we need to be in God's word every day. So that we are implanting that word in our hearts and in our minds. So that we'll never forget the love of Christ. So that we'll never forget the word of God. So that we'll never forget the promises of God toward his people. Man, we might forget to put air in the tires. You know, we might be running down the road. But we're singing every song we ever learned about Jesus. Oh, the tires, you know, ah. And you get to the, you know, then you, you pull into the, the gas station and you fill up with gas and you get in your car again. You, oh, the tires, you know, and you just keep forgetting. But, that, but you don't forget the love of Christ. What God allows us to remember is so special. Turn to Exodus for a moment, would you please? Exodus chapter 15, because I, I want to focus our attention upon everything that we can have from God because of what he's promised. The children of Israel have been going through the wilderness after they're leaving, after leaving uh, Egypt. And we're told here, now when they came to Marah, they could not drink the waters of Mara, for they were bitter. Mara, by the way, means bitter. And therefore the name of it was called Mara, and the people complained against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? So he cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree. And when he cast it into the waters, the waters were made sweet. And there he made a statute and an ordinance for them. And there he tested them and he said, If you diligently heed the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his sight, give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you which I have brought on the Egyptians. For I am the Lord who heals you. For I am the Lord who heals you. What a beautiful promise. If we stay focused on the Lord if we stay. And you know what's so significant about this passage is what we found there in verse 25 where, where it says that, that the Lord showed Moses a tree. You see, the symbolism is so clear. The tree, speaking of the cross, it is the cross that makes our bitter life sweet. And the waters that we are given by Jesus Christ only come sweet to us. And we overflow with the sweetness of God's love and grace. For I am the Lord who heals you. Oh, what a promise, folks. What a promise. Does God heal still? I can tell you, He does. He does. Does he heal always the way we want him to? Not always. But he heals his way and in his time. Because his timing is always perfect. His timing is always right. 
Now Judah and Jerusalem were guilty of the same sins as Samaria. And see, this is why we were saying, we're given this whole uh, first few verses here to tell us that, that you know, Ephraim is, is in sin and the sin of drunkenness and pride. But so is Judah. And so the woe is going to come upon Jerusalem. And notice in verses 7 and 8. But they also have erred through wine. They also have erred through wine and through intoxicating drink. Oh no, we're, 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 we're way past that one now. We're in Isaiah 28 verse 7. Is a, oh, that is, okay, Isaiah 28 verse 7. All right, all right. But, but they also have erred through wine and through intoxicating drink are out of the way. The priests and the prophet have erred through intoxicating drink. They are swallowed up by wine. They are out of the way through intoxicating drink. They err in vision. They stumble in judgment. For all tables are full of vomit and filth. Sorry, but you know, that's just what it says. No place is clean. The very mention of the priests and the prophets more than likely refers to the people of Jerusalem and Judah. Why? Because the temple was in Jerusalem. These leaders of the people who should have been examples to the people were were staggering drunk through the city in in degradation and disgrace. Those who claim to be drunk in the Spirit should take heed of this. You know, people today are saying, oh, I just need to get drunk in the Spirit. No, no, no. I don't like that terminology. Where Where does it even say that in the Scriptures? Where are they getting this? They're, they're, they're mis, misapplying Scripture when they, when they say these things. It's ridiculous that, that today, you know, people are saying, oh, we're drunk with wine. And that's, you know, that's when we see all these weird things going on in churches today. They need to take heed because it reflects the actions of the flesh more than the actions of, that are spirit-led and spirit-controlled. You see, Paul said in Ephesians 5, verse 18, Do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Don't be drunk with wine. Be filled with the Spirit. There's not a, there's, this is not to, to say, you know, don't be drunk with wine. Be drunk with the Spirit. No, it says be filled with the Spirit. But there's control in the Spirit, isn't there? You read what? You read the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5, and it tells us that one of the fruit of the Spirit is what? Self-control. Look at 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. Here it says, Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh... Arm yourselves also with the same mind, for he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For And notice verse 3, For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles, when we walked in lewdness, lusts, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. We are not to live the same way as we did before we came to Christ. And pride and drunkenness weren't their only sins. They also mocked the prophets of God and rejected the Word of God. This is the saddest part of this whole picture. That they mocked the prophets and they rejected God's Word in the south where the temple is, where the priests and the prophets were supposed to be. Notice verses 9 and 10. These are the words of the drunken priests and the prophets. Whom will he teach knowledge? And whom will he make to understand the message? Those just weaned from milk? In other words, children? Those just drawn from the breasts? For precept must be upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little. This is a mockery, folks. 
In the Hebrew language, the, the words are almost, almost gibberish. Almost gibberish. Like little children. As a matter of fact, there are syllables of that almost, that, almost like that. They're making fun of the prophets. These are the words, as I said, of the drunken prophets and the priests and their ridicule of Isaiah. This is what they're saying. He is talking to us like we're little kids. He keeps saying the same things over and over and over again and uses the vocabulary of, vocabulary of children toward us. Why should we take anything he says seriously? They were making fun of the fact that he said precept upon precept, line upon line. Why is that so many people today take that similar attitude toward God's servants and God's word? There are many people today who laugh at the simple message of the gospel of Jesus Christ because they are so intoxicated in their intellectual pride. I mentioned some university professors who consider the gospel of Jesus Christ foolishness. I was watching uh, news last night and they were doing a story about a college back east, William and Mary College, I believe. Where for many, many years they had a cross in their chapel. Well, that's a nice place to have a cross. A chapel? But you see, that chapel now, you know, it's, it's, it's politically incorrect in that chapel to have a cross because you're offending other people. So they took the cross out. At the same time, they allowed some kind of a strip show to take place on campus. So guess what? When people complained, they put the cross back. That's at a place of higher learning. They showed a clip of this, this, this show that they were having with a prostitute and all. A stripping, by the way. This is in a place, in a, in a college called William and Mary University. William and Mary right now are turning in their graves. That's what they say. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 and 19 says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being, who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. I'd like for you to read the rest of that later, but I want to jump down to verse 27. It says, But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty and the base things of the world and the things which are despised God has chosen and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are that no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him you are in Christ Jesus who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption that as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. Folks, I'm not saying that higher education is, is not important. I think it is. But I think we need to be wise and we need to be discerning in what we learn. We need Christians in the medical field. We need Christians in the legal field. We need Christians in, in every field of, of, of life. We need Christians in higher education. We're, we're losing the basis of, in, of true intellectual knowledge. Because when, when the greatest institutions of learning, Harvard and Yale, were established, they were established on the gospel of Jesus Christ. People don't know that today. Many of them who go to that, those quote-unquote hallowed 
universities. Folks, those colleges were based upon the Word of God. And where has it gone? What, is, what was Isaiah's response, you see, to this mockery from these religious drunkards? Because that's what they were. Well, let's look, we'll close with verses 11 through 13. Notice it says, notice what it says. For with stammering lips and another tongue he will speak to this people. To whom he said, this is the rest which, with which you may cause the weary to rest. And this is the refreshing Yet they would not hear. In other words, they were already told, if you'll do this, I'll give you rest. If you'll obey me, I'll give you rest. If you heed my words, I'll give you rest. And I'll give you refreshing. They would not hear. Verse 13. But the word of the Lord was to them. And notice, precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line. Here a little, there a little, that they might go and fall backward and be broken and snared and caught. Isaiah is saying in essence here, if you're not going to listen to the simple message in your own tongue, then God will speak to you in a language you don't understand. And I'm not talking about the gift of tongues. He'll send the Assyrian army whose language is foreign to you. The message of rest and deliverance would be rejected, but it wasn't the fault of God's word. It wasn't the fault of God's word and it wasn't the fault of God's messengers. It wasn't the fault of God's prophets and it wasn't the fault of God's preachers. In effect, Isaiah takes the mocking insult of the drunkards and he receives it as a compliment. He says, oh, so you're mocking this? Precept upon precept, line upon line, here a little, there a little, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book. That's okay. We're going to keep doing that. Why? Because this is how you learn God's Word. Paul told the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, verses 26 and 27, Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God, precept upon precept, line upon line. I added that, but that's what he was saying. I have not shunned to, to, uh, to declare to you the whole counsel of God. And so the result of the faithful proclamation of God's word for those who reject it is not at all good for them. It is not a good thing. Why? Because he says that they might go and fall backward and be broken and snared and caught. Folks, this is what happened to both Ephraim and Judah by the hands of the Assyrians. And again, where we started, we close. The warning was given based on the example of those who had already felt the sting of the consequences of their sins. The Word of God is a beautiful, beautiful document. From Genesis to Revelation, it is God's letter to us. It is God's revelation of His Son, Jesus Christ. It is God's revelation to us of His work from beginning to end and throughout all eternity. Within the Word of God are many warnings for us to keep us on that path of righteousness, to keep us focused and heading toward the Lord. And I'm just, I just want to close with, with just this, this particular thought. I, I didn't add it in my notes, but I'm just going to close with it. 
This is in Philippians chapter 2. Paul said this in, in verses 5 through 11. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. And so from... Christ's example of humility, we humble ourselves. The warnings are there, but so is the way of escape. So is the way of blessing. So is the way of righteousness. Shall we pray?